Years ago, when I was in seminary, I worked at Dairy Mart. And so I sold beer, cigarettes, and lotto tickets to help put myself through seminary. Don't ask me about the theological implications of that because I get I really wasn't thinking of them at the time. I didn't have a car. We only had one car and Jenny took off in the car to go to work. And so it was the only place I could walk to in work. And so I figured God would like me to not have debt. And so I did I did a Dave thing. Only Dave would have said, get a car and deliver pizza. So there you go. But at Dairy Mart, at, I didn't know this. I. I was so naive that when I got the job, I thought it was mostly about selling gasoline. And it was only later that I learned, if it's a convenience store, all their profit, all their sales are in beer, cigarettes, and lotto tickets. Gas is just, you know, there to draw people in. (laughs) They don't make any money on gas. I didn't know that. So I learned something. But there was another clerk in the store, and if she was 20, I would have been shocked, okay? But so she was this young thing, and she was pregnant. She was going to have her very first baby, and she was so excited about this. And she would say, this was the phrase she would use, I cannot wait until this baby arrives. Finally, there is going to be someone to love me. I know some of you older, wiser people are like, ooh, not good. Psychological stuff. Yes, yes, it gets better. She also thought that by having this baby, it would just totally draw in her boyfriend and he would marry her, and then she would quit her job, and they would, you know, happily... This baby was her ticket to happiness. Now, as I worked at Dairy Mart, and as the months progressed, and as the pregnancy progressed, um, boyfriend went away, and then boyfriend had another lover, and then every time she came in, it was boo! And I couldn't tell. I, You know, Jenny had never been pregnant at that point, so I didn't know what it was like to be around pregnant people. So I I learned real quick, it's pretty dangerous, actually. (laughs) Anything you say can be used against you. Um, And so, you know, how are you? Or I'm having a great day and a great day. Or, you know, I just didn't know. And so, uh, but she thought that that baby was going to be a ticket to happiness. And it it just didn't work out that way. And then from Wheaton, uh, we had this uh, mutual friend when we graduated. And we get Christmas cards from him every year with this uh, letter of amazing stuff. And and he, I, I, I got to make up a name because I don't want you to go on the alumni thing and list. I'll call him Chris. Chris isn't his real name, but he's really tall. He was like a Ken doll, only really smart. So he was just tall, really good looking, handsome. As soon as we graduated, he was hired by a Fortune 500 company. And every year at Christmas, we would get the Christmas letter from them. And it would list off the, their kids' accomplishments, you know, at age three. I think one of them learned to play the piano. By age five, one of them was like a Nobel Peace Prize winner. You know, one of those kind of Christmas letters. And, and uh, for, I remember, I, uh, John, you know, you did great for your 13th birthday. I think you got 20 or 30 bucks or something like that. You know, his son, on his son's 13th birthday, I guess Boeing had just released one of their big planes, and it was the first flight from Seattle to Tokyo. And so he took his son first class on that flight to Tokyo for his son's 13th birthday party. So it'll give you a flavor. I mean, when they traveled, they traveled internationally. And then, you know, so this was, these were the letters. They, they were living the good life. And then the letter two years ago about how Chris had missed work for six weeks 
because he had basically had a breakdown because of stress and couldn't manage his job and couldn't manage his life. And, the, and so, you know, at, at, after we got through our initial snarkiness, which God convicted us of, which is, wow, serve him right, you know, see, your pastor can sin too. And then we were like, oh, that's terrible. How would we feel for us, okay? And, but boom, the good life did not work. It was not the ticket to happiness that at least reading the letter would seem to be. And you would say to me, Max, you are so right. There are so many dumb people out there, aren't there? Yes, there are. <laughs> but really, are you and I all that smarter? Come on. I mean, have, was there ever a time, I'm, let, I'm thinking of the iPhone or iPad that you couldn't wait to get, and you were just so excited, and this was just going to so change your life, and things were going to be so much better, and then you got it, and it was just going to be this breakthrough thing, and then... It just kind of ate more of your time. If anything, it was like, hey, mom, hey, dad, could you put the screen down? If your kids are telling you that, you know, you're, you're staring at it too much, you know, kind of a thing. Um, for those of you that are younger, you might have this that plays in your mind. Man, someday, one day, when I fall in love, I will be happy. Oh, someday, one day, when I am not living with mom and dad, dot, 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 I will be happy. They will be Chris is right. They will be happy. <laughs> someday, someday, one day, when I'm done with school, dot, 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 I will be happy. Someday, one day, when I pay off my school debt, <laughs> I will be happy. Someday, one day, when I own a home, when I get a job, when I, when I sort of, and so the on it goes. And we think all these things are going to make us happy. You and I are on a happiness quest. If you're born in America, America trains you from birth to be on a quest for personal happiness. It's just culturally the soup that's part of America, and, and we all are part of it. And we know what success in America is. It's a huge home, a you know beautiful marriage, whatever that means, kids that accomplish great things and find a cure for cancer, and lots of money. Because, right, nobody can be poor and be happy. So that's kind of it on a stick in America. And so that's the bill of goods that's sold to us. Um, and, and so in the Bible, you actually have five books in the Bible that are specifically addressed to the issue of what is success? What is success and how do you know if you've got it? How do you measure it? What is a successful life? The five books, ironically, that deal with that question are the wisdom literature books. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, and Psalms. Those are the books in the Bible that deal with success and what success is all about. Um, and we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes today, of all of them. All right? Uh, uh, Melville, who wrote the novel Moby Dick, said this about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the fine hammered steel of woe. Don't you love that? The fine hammered steel of woe. I can't even go that low. Okay? What he's saying is the guy that wrote this book had a hard life. Not only did he have a hard life, he has nothing to lose. And so you know what? He's going to shoot straight. He's going to tell you how it is. He's not going to lie to you. You can take it to the bank. This guy knows what he's talking about. This guy who penned the book of Ecclesiastes. Actually, Ecclesiastes and Job are answering the same, are, are, are addressing the same issue, just from two sides of the coin. 
What does it mean to be successful from the book of Job if you have nothing? I mean, what, what does that mean? If, you got, if everything's taken away from you, if you don't even have your health, if your own wife is telling you, curse God and die, what's success? What does that look like? And then from Ecclesiastes, what does it look like if you have everything? If you are literally the king, the most popular man, the most powerful man, the man who can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, no expense spared. So those two books actually deal with the same thing. So uh, if you brought a Bible, open it to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's really easy to find because it's after Psalms and Proverbs. So it's in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. All right. And verse one gives us a clue who it is. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. That person is Solomon. All right. Solomon. And Solomon says this in verse two. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. And you and I would go, everything? Yep, everything. Marriage? Yep, marriage. Money? Yep, money. Achievement? Yep, achievement. Everything? Yep, everything is meaningless. I know some of you are like, really? Yes, everything. So I want you to get this. Everything is meaningless, all right? And so he clues us, so what exactly does that mean, O Solomon, O teacher? All right, well, he spells it out. Verse 4 and following. Generations come and generations go. Or what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and round it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea's never full. And then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. The circle of life. Now, everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Come on, let's so preach. Amen, teacher. You got it. Everything is wearisome. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Boy, if I could make a theme song for America, that would be it. Because America, we're obsessed with new. Oh, new. It's the new iPhone 4. It's new. It's the new Taurus. It's the new Camry. It's the new. Boom, new. And then as soon as new has been around for like three months, it's like so old. You don't even want it. I don't even want to touch it. It's so old. It's so passe. It's It's not even going to do anything for us anymore, all right? And so Solomon is saying is despite all the work, despite all the effort, we go nowhere. It's the whole issue of I used to have a friend tell me this. She would say, Max, the thing about doing laundry is you're never done. There will always be another load. Let me say that again. The thing about doing laundry is you are never done. There will always be another load. Amen. All right? (laughs) And so... Despite all this work, despite all this effort, he's saying we're really not going anywhere with all this stuff that we strive and strive and strive for. And in case you and I would question his credentials, he, down in verse 16, says this. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. He's wanting to remind you and me. In case you have forgotten, I'm the guy that when the crown came to me and God asked me for anything I wanted, I asked God to make me wise, and God gave me that gift. 
I'm that guy, remember? Ding! So what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to explain about life, you can take it to the bank because I got this thing in the bag. So what exactly does he say to us? And this is chapter 2, verses 1 and following. I said to myself, come, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter's silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. All right? What Solomon is saying is, I had the means, and so you know what I did? I partied. If there was any pleasure to be had with food, I ate it. With women, I did it. I did everything that you could possibly do to experience pleasure. And at the end of it, eh. And and 1 Kings, I don't want you to turn there, but 1 Kings clues us into the kind of parties that Solomon threw. 1 Kings says this, The daily food requirements for Solomon's palace were 150 bushels of choice flour and 300 bushels of meal. Also, 10 oxen from the fatted pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roe, and choice poultry. He was throwing parties for thousands of people. Okay? The guy knew how to party, but he said at the end of it, I mean, it's almost like he's waking up in a cab from Tijuana, and he's saying, you know what? (laughs) You know what? Not worth it. Okay, so then he goes on and he tries some other things. Let's see what else he tries. Verse four. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself. His palace, by the way, took 14 years to build. Okay, can you imagine the escrow on that thing? Okay, Uh, I tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. And again, nothing. Okay, verse 7. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks more than any of the other kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, so much so that when he died, when they were gathering to crown who was going to be king next, the people of Israel, the elders, the vested land owners, all the people said to the the would-be heir, if you would just lighten up on the taxes, they were so oppressive under your father Solomon. Okay? You better believe he built. He taxed out the wazoo to do it, all right? I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. He had every conceivable convenience, all right? He had the Bill Gates windows home that the lights turned on when you went in. You know, some of you are Apple users are like, that's a loser stuff. Okay, he had the iHouse. He had the iHouse. He was cool. Not like dorky Windows people, right? Okay, so, right? He had every conceivable, I had everything a man could desire. And then verse 9, he goes on. So I became greater 
Then all who had lived in Jerusalem before me and my wisdom never failed me. What he's saying was the, the building, the parties, the, the lavishness, everything about me, I became greater. I was the man. The Bible tells us he was such the man that the queen of Sheba made a trip right all the way up just to see and meet with Solomon. There was something about his greatness, something about what he achieved that caught, caught attention, at least around the Mediterranean rim. Right? And he says, the key there for me is my wisdom never failed me. In other words, all along while I was trying pleasure, while I was building things, while I was trying to become great, all along I knew in here that it wouldn't take me where I wanted to go. My wisdom never left me. All right? So uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 puts it this way. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What he's saying is there's something wired in humanity that craves to be satisfied. And the only thing that can satisfy that is God. You can try pleasure. You can try having... Uh, you can do the sex challenge that the lady wrote the book about. She said she and her, uh, she agreed that she would have sex with her husband every night of the week or every night for a year. So 365 days, you can take it to the bank. She wanted to write a book about her experience. What would that be like? What would that mean for marriage? Right? Okay. You could you could go down that road. I know a lot of guys would be like, okay, that sounds good. Right, sign me up. Right, I'm ready for that. Um, you could go down the road of money. You could go down the road of having, you know, writing the best-selling book, having Oprah go, oh, my God, okay, about you, (laughs) which then everybody would do, oh, when you walked into a room, even the president, oh, okay, would do that when you walked in the room because Oprah did it, right? Okay, so you could have all of that, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's not going to satisfy this longing for eternity that somehow is hardwired in humanity. See, we we have this sense, and I think that's what he's trying to get at here in Ecclesiastes, we have this sense of what we lost in the fall and in our rebellion against God. We have this sense that we've lost this connection, this joy, this satisfaction that comes with being connected to God. All right? Solomon himself summarizes it this way, and if you'll put those next verses up there, John Mark, verses 23 and following. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Amen. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. They're stressed about work. It's all meaningless, he says. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, when he had everything, he concluded, eh, doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. And it makes sense if you think about it. If this world is broken, if humanity has rebelled against God, it's kind of silly to think that someone else who's also broken and in rebellion against God is going to somehow make you happy. And yet we do that all the time. When we meet someone, we fall in love. Oh, they're the one. They're going to make me dot, 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 happy. And then you're married to them like three years and you're like, 
you're not making me happy. You need to change your game. You need to do... <laughs> right? Okay? We, we do this. It's the oddest thing. Okay? It's crazy that we would expect broken, wounded people in rebellion against God to make us happy. It's crazy that we would think a coffee maker, an iPhone, a device, a home, a job would make us happy. And yet... Here we are in America in 2012, and the wide highway of American life is toward this destination that somehow this combination of good relationship, kids with achievement, money, etc., will make us happy. Is it any wonder why famous people end up getting addicted to drugs and have to go to rehab? They're famous, they have money, they have wealth, they were not raised to handle any of it. And at the end of the road, they more or less admit, my life was empty. I did this. I would do tours. I would do concerts. I would have all these people that wanted me and would want me personally. And at the end of the day, eh, just didn't do it for me. They're saying what Solomon said when he said it's all meaningless. In America, here's the problem that we have. We think we can be happy apart from God. It doesn't work. This doesn't work, period. Doesn't work. You cannot be happy apart from God. Doesn't work. That's what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 3.11. And that's what he wants you to remind you and I today. Um, and that is only, only joy, only happiness, only satisfaction can come with a connection to and a satisfaction in God and who God is. And I know that's kind of hard to grasp, but let me spell out heaven and hell for a moment. What? Yes, it's all tied together. C.S. Lewis said that hell is the absence of God. Hell is the absence of God. Now, the Bible tells us that when my wife comes up to me and gives me a huge hug and says, I love you and I'm proud of you, that's a gift from God. The fact that I have three kids is a gift from God. The fact that I will eat today and I won't have to walk five miles and get water out of some dink, stinking, dirty, polluted water source that's going to make me sick, that's a gift from God. There are so many things in my every. In fact, every good thing in my life, every good thing in your life that's good and that you enjoy actually comes from God. That's why he says this in verse 24. So I decided there's nothing better to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God, right? So heaven is enjoying God forever. And anything you and I have in this life that's good is because of God. And so we get little itty-bitty like um, samples. You know, go to the ice cream store and they go... I don't know what flavor to, okay, would you like a spoon? Yes. And then they, okay, boom. You're like, mmm, cinnamon crunch explosion. It's not, it's not half bad, okay? Everything in this life are little itty-bitty tastes of what heaven, full enjoyment of God all the way is going to be. So in light of this, let me ask some questions, teen generations. Question number one, what are you counting on or hoping is going to make you happy? What is that? Is that really your kids? Come on, can you really count on them? Is it, <laughs> what is it you are counting on to make you happy? What was the last thing you thought would make you happy? And did that work? Some of you are like, hey now, you need to stop that. It's just God, not me. Forget it. Okay, question number two. If you haven't been pursuing God, why not? 
Is it because you think he's boring or because you think he's going to rob you of your happiness or somehow your life's going to get ruined? Yeah, I'd follow God, but he's just going to ruin my life because it's all the rules and all this stuff. Really? Would he really ruin your life if, if everything good in life is from him anyway? Is it really possible for God to ruin your life if you're pursuing him? Okay. And then lastly, what will avoiding God ultimately cost you? If you're looking to all these other things to make you happy instead of God, what's that going to cost? What's that gonna, how's that going to work out at the end of the day? I believe that when you and I pursue our own happiness, we end up miserable. It's the funniest thing. It's like telling, I've, I've been in the car with my kids on the road and about, I would love to say six hours into it, but really it's about 45 minutes into it, you know, Make him stop. You know, carnage. Okay, they're all screaming. If I, as the parent in that moment, we are on vacation and you're going to have fun right now. Does that work? No. Fun is always a byproduct of doing something else. Joy is always a byproduct of chasing after God and experiencing God and enjoying God. Joy is always a byproduct of God. True happiness is a byproduct of God. You can't make yourself joyful, but pursuing God, enjoying God, being connected to God, boom, all of a sudden, yeah, then, then it, you have it. And that's why he says this um, in, in verses 24 and following. I realize these pleasures are a gift from the hand of God, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless, like a chasing after a wind. But God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. All right? I want for you to have real happiness. I want for me to have real happiness. And so today's a reminder for me and you that, no, it's not going to be a, it's not the house. It's not the dream job. It's not kids who find a cure for cancer. Let's face it, by the time you're 60, you're going to be having these conversations. Why haven't they called? They didn't have called in two weeks. I don't, you know, they're busy. They love you. They're busy, okay? <laughs> so, boom. Happiness, joy is connected to what? God. This is the easy Sunday school answer. Happiness and joy is a byproduct of what? God. Right. It's not going to come from all this other stuff. And so I just wanted to remind you and remind me of that today.